Father, we thank you tonight for your love for us. And I pray for myself, I pray for each one that stands before you, that you would give us a fresh step forward in growing in our understanding of the greatness of your love for us, something that we will never, ever be able to exhaust or fully understand because it's your very nature. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you, Lord, for all of the forms that your love takes in our life, the encouragement that we need when we need it, the spiritual hug that you give to us and how you use people in that way. And then even, Lord, as it takes the form of your chastening and the form of your warning, we see your love in all of it. And we thank you that you operate under a definition of love that's very different from the world we live in that is willing to watch uh, people and entire groups of people become casualties of their sin and their decisions and never speak a word. But we thank you that you care about us, that you risk the relationship in order to exhort us and in order to even upbraid us at times and to draw us back to you once again in your fullness. And we thank you for your inexhaustible grace that is always there for us when we turn to you. Thank you, Father, for what you have made us into thus far in our pilgrimage. We thank you that we are not the same people that we once were. We thank you, Lord, for the poema, the work of art, the workmanship that you are making us into. And we ask that you would use this time in your word tonight to further accomplish that beautiful thing in each one of our lives this evening. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Please be seated. And let's turn tonight in Jeremiah chapter 18, Sunday night, studying the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come tonight to Jeremiah chapter 18. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And do you wave to them, and they'll put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from uh, us to you this evening. We've been away from uh, the Sunday night in terms of the teaching uh, in the survey of the Scriptures for a little while. It is good to remember that uh, the ministry of Jeremiah covered a period of at least 40 years. Some people estimate as long as 50 years. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of prophesying, and that's a lot of rejection that Jeremiah ultimately faced, uh, not from a pagan world, not from the Philistines, not from the Amorites or the Ammonites or any of the otherites, the uptites and outosites, as uh, somebody has put it, the termites, but all of these other people that, uh, you know, you would expect that he would get that kind of a reaction to, but here he's getting it from uh, God's people. And he ministers his prophetic ministry for a period uh, that long without a single recorded convert in the course of all of it. As we study the book of Jeremiah, there's a couple of ways to study it, and, uh, and we don't want to choose between one or the other because both of them are intended to uh, be accomplished in our lives as we study it. And first and foremost, we study the book uh, for its message, and it has a very strong and important message 
for uh, our own individual lives, but also for uh, our day and, and our hour. And it's also to study it uh, not only concerning the message, and the message becomes repetitive at a particular point, though God is, uses a lot of different creative ways to try and open up the hearts of the people of Judah, His people, uh, to listen to His message that they need to repent of their sin or they're going to be judged for it with a, a horrible judgment. And so Jeremiah was essentially called to oversee the death of a nation, uh, and the death of not just any nation, but a nation that uh, was God's nation, God's people, had been founded on the things of the Lord. And I don't know where this world is going. I don't know where our nation is going. Sometimes things change uh, in some small degree at least in terms of, uh, you know, righteousness, election by election and so forth. But as I look at the world, uh, you know, below political policies and so forth and see the, uh, the access to sin that we have in this world, the addiction to sin in the world in which we live, and, uh, and to look and say, I don't see anything other than a revival uh, from the Holy Spirit turning the population of the world, and certainly the Western world, away from uh, our sin. Uh, it takes a passion to conquer a passion, and we have a great passion for sin in Western culture, and the only passion that is greater than a passion for sin that can then set us free from that sin is a passion for God. And uh, we need a revival for that uh, to be planted supernaturally in people's hearts in a greater number than it is now. But we may very well be a generation that's called by God to oversee not only the death of a nation spiritually, but the death of a world spiritually. And so how do we conduct ourselves? What are the highs and the lows that are involved in a Christian life and that uh, kind of environment? What are the pressures to move away from the message? What does it take in a relationship with God to be able to stand in the midst of it? And the book of Jeremiah teaches us an awful lot about that, not merely the message, but to study the man for our own ministries and the hour in which God has called us to uh, represent Him and be a voice for Him. In, in human history, uh, chapter 18. And uh, God is, continues here to uh, use in chapters 18 and 19 some various means that are kind of creative in order to uh, gain the attention of the people of Judah. Jeremiah is obviously prophesying, standing, declaring the word of, of the Lord. But then occasionally God has him do something like uh, with the sash that he wore, the belt, and uh, taking it to, you know, the uh, river in Babylon, it being spoiled, a picture of, uh, of, the, uh, of the, the spiritual spoiled condition of Judah and so forth. And now he continues to use, I wouldn't call them props, but they're visuals that he adds. That's a better way to put it. Visuals that he adds to the message in order to try and get the people to, uh, uh, to uh, come in and this message to hit them maybe in a different angle in which they would listen uh, to him. And so uh, he uses the kind of uh, two lessons related to pottery here in chapters 18 and 19. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. So, 
Potters were very, very common in the ancient world. That's where you got your dishes. That's where you got your mugs that you drank from and so forth. And so there were always these potter places, pottery places where these things were being made. And the Lord tells him, I want you to go down to the potter's house and then once you get there, I've got a message for you. Well, you know, Jeremiah, just like us, he's going to make a beeline there. God wants to say something to me. And so then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, the potter, and making something at the wheel. So he's fashioning some kind of a, a, a clay object on the wheel. And the vessel that he made of the clay, it was marred in the hand of the potter. So you see the clay on the wheel, it's moving around, it's, he's making it into something, and then somehow something goes wrong, it's marred. And so what does he do? He kind of squishes the clay back down again in order to start all over again, to make it into something different. And so he made it again into another vessel as seemed good to the potter uh, to make. And so this is the visual that he sees. God now gives him the lesson uh, of the potter's house. And then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, so this is a message for uh, Judah, for the Jews, uh, can I not do with you as this potter does with the clay, says the Lord. Look as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will then relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said uh, I would uh, benefit it. And, and so this is what the, the message that he speaks then to Israel, into, into Judah, as a result of uh, the lesson from the potter's house. And the lesson that he's declaring to the nation, and it's true of each of us, it's true of the world that we live in today, is, it the, is the potter fashioned the clay. The potter has absolute sovereignty, absolute authority over that clay to do with that clay whatever he wants to do, to fashion it into whatever he uh, wants to. The clay has absolutely no power uh, to resist. And, uh, and, and here God is declaring to the southern kingdom of Judah the folly of thinking that they can resist God as a piece of clay in the potter's hand and to have any success in being successful in that resistance against the sovereignty of God. You know, we only know God uh, through a glass darkly, Paul says. We know him from the vantage point of earth. We know him from the vantage point of the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures. It's a wonderful revelation. I'm not complaining. But one day when we see him in his glory, and then we have this incredible revelation upon the revelation we already have, to see his power, to see his authority. I mean, we will wonder that we spent even a minute of time uh, trying to resist him. It really is 
a, a practical, it's insanity. It is a practical atheism within our lives as Christians. Not saying that we are an atheist, but uh, practically speaking, to think that I can ever resist God in any way in what He's wanting to do in my life or any command that He gives me and have any hope of being successful. And why do we resist Him? Because somehow in that goofiness of our flesh, we lose sight of His sovereignty and we lose sight of the fact that when we pick a fight with God or we choose to rebel against Him, we have absolutely no hope of being successful in that rebellion. As I mentioned before, as we looked at Jeremiah, when God is your problem, then you have you have no hope of being successful in that fight and in that battle because when God is your problem, then only God is your answer or your solution. And so we do the same kind of things that hopefully not as entrenched or protracted as, as Judah did and all, but there is no way that we can pick a fight with God, resist Him, and have any hopes of winning. And, and so it's an important lesson uh, that speaks to us to, today. And this is a manifestation of His love for us, uh, that, that He does not let us win in a battle against Him. There is no plan for our lives or a purpose for our lives that is higher than the one that God has for us. In any fight against God, any, any battle we have against God, if we were to win there, we would lose. And when we lose in a fight against God, we always win. How many of you don't shout out, but you've walked with the Lord for a while, and here you fought against God concerning some particular issue, some decision that He had made, some path He had put you on. It looked like all disaster to you in front of your eyes. This is going to be awful in the temptation to fight against Him on it, and then to even engage in the battle. And then we invest some amount of time on that path, and then we see what God was up to all along, and it was infinitely superior than anything that we could have had in mind. And what we were fighting God over was something that was desperately inferior to what uh, God had planned. No, every time God wins and we lose in that battle, and He makes sure of it because He loves us enough to do that, we always win. And so a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God, the almightiness of God, and, uh, uh, and those pictures within the Scripture are, are very, very valuable. In the words of a, uh, someone in my generation, he put it this way, he said, you don't tug on Superman's cape, and you don't spit in the wind, and you don't pull the mask off the old, uh, old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Slim. And uh, Jim Croce wrote that, and uh, it's funny what comes to your mind when you think about things in the Bible, but that came to my mind. And uh, it's just, you just don't mess around with God in this way. There's no chance of, of winning that fight. The other thing is we, I think I mentioned it related to my prayer, is the Bible teaches that we are His workmanship uh, in the book of Ephesians. And the word workmanship there, as it's, it's described there, it means that we are God's work of art. Uh, we are His poema, His poem, His work of art. 
The thing about an artist and anything that an artist produces is a true artist, whatever they produce, is an expression of their heart. It's an expression of them. That's what art is to an artist. To me, it's just scribbling on a page if I were to do it. But an artist has uh, uh, the desire of self-expression related to all of that. And God is working in each one of our lives with the intention of producing something very individual, very unique. There's something about all of our lives that is absolutely uniform. But then that's something different that He makes us into as an individual person in which His love and His power and His grace is manifested uh, to the world in a way that it isn't through uh, anyone uh, else. And so this submission to God, this lack of rebellion against God, it allows God to do that uh, beautiful work and it allows this poema of His to uh, be expressed uh, through our lives. So often it feels like, um, and, you know, depending on who you are, maybe a more regu- or less regular kind of experience. I think it's more regular than uh, unusual in our lives as Christians. If you were to, you know, you picture within your mind being on a potter's wheel. Today, you know, they've got the electric ones. Nobody's got the two, uh, you know, two pieces of stone, and they're moving the one with their foot down below and then fashioning up above. People have moved away from uh, that kind of thing. But you, uh, so often you feel, we feel like we're a piece of clay on that, that stone. It's whirling around. Everything looks like it's absolute uh, confusion. Everything's out of control. And then he starts to add pressure to this area of our life and that area of our life. We think it's the end of the world. And then one day we see, ah, that's what he was making me into. That's what area of my life he was fashioning in the middle of, uh, of all of that. And we realize, no, he uses his sovereignty, uh, but he always uses for the child of God, he use, always uses his sovereignty for good. I remember hearing as a new Christian that the sovereignty of God, his almightiness, his absolute uh, authority, the sovereignty of God would scare you to death if you didn't know as a child of God that He will only use His sovereignty uh, for our good within our life. And it's very, very true of Him. He can be very firm, but He's always got a a good thing in mind as He exercises that uh, sovereignty and that authority within our life. Then the lesson uh, coming out uh, of Uh, all of this, verse 11, now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. I want him devising plans for me, not against me. So that's why we try to obey the Lord and want to do that. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. So again, there's this dramatic kind of demonstration, and then here is the same message, the call to repentance. And they said, that's hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans, and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of our evil heart. And so Judah refuses the invitation by God uh, to repent of their sin. I hope none of us would do that uh, tonight in this room, and they, they basically Uh, continue on their own path. They're basically saying to God, God, if repentance in our life is what is required for that judgment to be turned away, then we choose our sin. There's no hope in the situation because we will not repent of our sin. 
And so again, there's nothing new under the sun. That's the world I live in, at least from my perspective. When I look again, as I mentioned before, at the accessibility of sin, how much sin is available today, uh, the addiction to sin and, and secret sins, open sins, and so forth, I believe I live in a world, unless the Holy Spirit breaks through in individual people's hearts or we see some kind of a revival, that people look and say, listen, if um, your favor and a turning away of judgment requires my repentance from sin, I'm not interested. My situation is hopeless. And so uh, they're communicated to God. Changing our ways is out of the question. Uh, if you want to uh, deal with us in a different way, then you can choose uh, a different way. Tremendous kind of arrogance that is expressed here. And therefore, thus says the Lord in response to all of this, ask now among the Gentiles, who has heard such a thing? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow uh, water of Lebanon, uh, Mount Hermon, uh, uh, the water in the northern section of Israel, uh, the water that comes up and it feeds the Jordan River? When we go to Israel, we go to a place called Tel Dan, and it's one of the three sources of the Jordan River, and it is basically a, a gigantic spring that is coming up out of the ground from the snow melt of Mount Hermon and from Lebanon, and it comes up and into a, a gigantic, year-round, a rushing river of water that is, is flowing down now into feed, uh, feed the Jordan River. So here you have a source of water. Remember, this is the Middle East. This is where every drop of water counts. And here you have a source of water that is snow melt. It is spring water. It's as pure as you can get, and it runs year-round as a river. And God says, who in the world, in the land of Israel, in the Middle East, would ever leave that as a source of water, and then uh, 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 and, uh, will the cold-flowing waters be forsaken for strange water? Who would leave that source of water for a pond that has a bunch of toads in it and algae on top? Well, in the same way, God was saying, who in their right mind would leave God as a source of blessing, not just water, but every kind of blessing into our lives, and then turn to these idols that are by comparison, uh, you know, something absolutely inferior. Why would you leave the true and the living God to whom they owned the, owed their houses, they owed the land, they owed their jobs, they owed their crops, they owed everything to God? And uh, why would you turn from the one who provided all of that to you now when you got kind of fat and sassy spiritually and uh, prospering and now uh, thinking that they're smarter than God and so forth? This is the cycle that it takes within our lives if we're not uh, careful. And so it would just be kind of insanity uh, for the... Um, uh, for a person to leave the one source for the other, and that's exactly what they had done spiritually. Because my people have forgotten me, uh, it's an amazing thing to forget God but they, and to be God's people. Because my people have forgotten me, 
Uh, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, that is God's paths, to walk in pathways and not on a highway, something that's wide and sure and strong and tested, God's way, the way of His Word, to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who comes by it, God said, after He's judging it, will be astonished and uh, shake His uh, head. I will scatter them as an east wind, that is a Sirocco wind that came out of the deserts. It would blow everything away. He said, I will scatter them as one of those desert winds before the enemy. I will show them the back, not the face, and the day of their calamity. And so, to show someone your face in, in the ancient culture was to show them favor. Uh, to fail to turn around to a person and just show them your back was a sign of disfavor. And so God says, they'll see my back and not my face in the day of calamity. Then they'll want me, uh, but then uh, it will be uh, too, uh, too late. And then uh, Jeremiah heads in, and we've got uh, another plot made against Jeremiah and that, that surfaces in the course of his ministry. And then they said, uh, you know, as Jeremiah is making these prophecies, you know, they just didn't, didn't want it. They didn't want to listen to it. They wanted to be free to, you know, go into their sin without any kind of guilt. How many of you, uh, again, don't shout out, but when you were younger and so forth, you had a mother or a father or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle who was always telling you, this is wrong, you're going to get, it's going to get, you know, and, and that uh, whole kind of uh, bringing the conviction of, of sin uh, into our lives, this isn't going to work out for you, that's wrong, you shouldn't uh, do it, and you, we do everything we can to get away from them uh, if we're uh, you know, wanting to continue in our sin, and that's the same thing that was happening here. So they want to get rid of Jeremiah. So what do you, when you don't like the message, what do you do? You get rid of the messenger. And it's always a sign of, of a weak position when, when, when what they're going to do, and that's what they're choosing to do, is let's get rid of Jeremiah, let's kill him, let's silence his voice. The children of Judah, they had no answer for the message and so, anytime you see, it's all of the time it's happening on television where you'll see in an interview is going on, and all of a sudden it goes from addressing the issues that are being addressed to now a personal attack against someone or one of the two people that are talking. And it's an, always an indication that someone has sensed immediately the weakness of their position uh, that they're defending here now, and it is indefensible, and so now they go on a personal attack. And so they had no answer to Jeremiah's prophecies that God had given to him. Now the attack against uh, Jeremiah. What happened to Jeremiah happens to us as well. Uh, it isn't that we're likely to be killed by our relatives uh, or our fellow Californians or Modestoans, but uh, it takes its own form uh, occasionally, even our in our nation. And so they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his uh, words. And so uh, they, they despised his tongue. They wanted him to be silenced here, and uh, that's the uh, that's the, the, the angle that they 
you know, come against him with. And when they say here, let us, uh, let us attack him with the tongue, the idea is let's lie against him, let's slander against him uh, to the government officials in the hope that he'll be arrested and, and then uh, executed. So this was the methodology that they took against, uh, against Jeremiah. Jeremiah responds by saying, give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid uh, for good? God, I've, I've only done good to these uh, people, and they're repaying evil to me, for they have dug a pit for my life. So this isn't like uh, they're, you know, uh, you know they're uh, serving him uh, spam for dinner instead of uh, T-bone steak. Uh, they want to kill him, and, and that's, that's the, the stakes here. They want to silence him by putting him uh, to death. Now, that's pretty serious business. You can get upset about that, uh, even as a Spirit-filled person. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for, the, uh, for them, to turn uh, away your wrath from them. God, I'm trying to do something good for them, and they want to kill me. And therefore, uh, uh, Jeremiah, he kind of uh, has his own prayer about what to do th to them, basically uh, do the same thing to them that they want to do to me. Bring on their judgment, Lord. They want to uh, kill me, then wipe them out. And therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses uh, when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. And four, and, and that, here's the reason, for they have dug a pit to take me and have hidden snares uh, for my feet. You get the sense that Jeremiah's kind of had it at this particular point uh, in time. Maybe he needs a second cup of coffee, or maybe he didn't need the first one. I don't know. But he's, he, you know, but you think about what he's in the middle of, and I think we've all experienced where it's just like, man, I have done for you, and I have done for you, and I have done for you, and this is what I get now. I don't mind you rejecting my message. I don't mind you doing whatever, but now you want to kill me, and you're taking it into your own hands. Uh, that's going uh, too far. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me, provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin uh, from your sight, uh, but let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. God, bring on your judgment that you've promised, and don't hold uh, anything uh, back in, in that in that judgment. Now, uh, the upside of all of this, of course, this is not a New Testament prayer for us. The Bible says that we need to leave vengeance to God, and uh, Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, and He said, uh, you have heard that it's said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of uh, your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so, uh, these aren't prayers. This isn't a prayer that we would necessarily pray related to our enemies. We would pray for our enemies. We would do good to them. We have to remember that in this new covenant, it's always true, but uh, most clear in the new covenant of the New Testament, that the uh, two most powerful weapons 
uh, that we uh, wield as Christians in this world, and there's nothing that co compares to them. If we want to make an impact in the spiritual realm, and those things are, number one, the Word of God and the love of God. There is no defense that people have against those two weapons. And so that's why the Lord says, uh, listen, deal with it in this way. I know it looks like, uh, you know, we ought to fight fire with fire here on this, but if you respond in love, I will take that and use it in a person's life in a way that, you know, yelling back at them or getting back at them uh, would never accomplish in terms of, uh, of getting uh, through, uh, through to them. And so uh, the Lord uh, speaks here and, and, uh, uh, in the New Testament. This is something a, a little different from where Jeremiah is here. Now, the one thing you have to give Jeremiah great credit for is that he didn't go to the temple and shout this prayer out. Um, the one safe place we can take all of our emotions and all of our feelings and uh, not even be right. You know, we can be really messed up. We can be in the flesh. I've begun to pray to God lots of times, totally in the flesh. It's the greatest place to go to when you're in the flesh, is go immediately to prayer. And then over some period of seconds or minutes or whatever it might be, pretty soon things begin to get settled out. God begins to take the upper hand, regains perspective within our life, and so this is something very, very wise. He brought it to the Lord. The Lord is always a safe uh, person uh, to uh, vent to. Jeremiah didn't take things into his own hands, uh, but uh, then leaves them there with the Lord. And then the, the second kind of uh, parable here, a lesson known as the lesson of the broken jar or the broken flask. And thus says the Lord, go and get uh, a potter's earthen flask. And that was just would be like a kind of a small uh, 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 pottery piece that would be round like this and then have a narrow neck that you would put uh, water uh, into. And so uh, go and pick one of these things up, not something that the potter's working on the wheel, but get one that's already dried. It's already hardened because Israel was already hardened uh, in their sin. And then take with you as you go to uh, get this uh, earthen flax at the potter's house, take some of the elders uh, uh, of the people and some of the elders of the priests with you. In other words, he would speak to them and say, hey, I'm going to the potter's house. God has told me to do that, to pick up a flask, and he's got a message uh, for you. Why don't you come with me? And so they did. And then go out with the flask to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by uh, the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I uh, tell you. And so they go out to this prophecy is going to take place in the valley of Hinnom. In Jeremiah's day, it was a site of uh, tremendous idolatry went on there. It was a site for the worship of Baal. It was the site for the worship uh, of Molech. It was also kind of the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And what they would do in those days, we don't do it uh, so much. We're a little more environmentally concerned. But uh, the, all of the garbage would be taken out in there. It would be dead animals or whatever it might be, other garbage. And the dump just basically uh, burned all of the time. There was always smoke coming off of it. That's why uh, it became uh, symbolic of, uh, of hell. And 
And so this is where they, they went. They go uh, to the potsherd gate, probably a place where uh, the broken pottery of Jerusalem uh, was uh, thrown away. Now, we've got to remember a little bit about Judah's history and Israel's history in general at this particular point to understand the prophecy that he's making against them and really the horror of what went on in their history in the valley of the son of Hinnom. It was here that in their history they had… excuse me a moment. It was there that they had sacrificed their sons and their daughters uh, to Molech during the reign of King Manasseh. And uh, you remember they would take this earthen kind of image of Molech or a metal one, uh, get it roaring hot, red hot, and so forth, and then they would tumble their babies into the arms of Molechs, into the flames, and uh, the idea was that Baal or Molech, these were the gods of fertility, so that the gods of fertility would then provide them with fertile crops, provide them with more children and more, uh, you know, uh, prosperity or financial security as a result uh, of this. And so the idea was yeah, you would take and give to Molech that which was most precious to you in order to earn his blessing. This is nothing like the God of the Bible, but this is the way that uh, Molech was worshipped in, in that time. And in that point in history, uh, you know, Judah followed them uh, in that practice for a time. And so uh, here they are on this scene, all of these elders and priests, they're aware of what the valley is all about and what has, been, has gone on there. And Jeremiah was told by the Lord and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place, speaking of Jerusalem, that whoever hears of it, they don't not just see it, but when they hear about the judgment that I'm going to bring upon this, what the Babylonians are going to do once they come into this city, uh, when they hear it, his ears will tingle. You ever hear somebody say something and you have a physical reaction to it? It's involuntary. And, and, uh, and uh, it just kind of take, takes over. The news is so awful. It's so horrible. And God says, that's what's going to happen in terms of the news of your destruction because uh, they have forsaken me and made this uh, an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood uh, of the innocents. And so here is that offering of children unto Molech that God uh, uh, testifies to the fact that he had uh, witnessed this abomination that they had practiced. And they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. God said, I had nothing to do with that. One of the problems God has here at this point with, with Judah, and he has, a, he has this problem with uh, always when uh, one of his children backslides, is that when people know a person to be a Christian, and they're automatically going to come to conclusions about our God based upon what they see in our life. 
And people don't know enough about the Bible to know that this person is backslidden and there's such a thing as a real Christian or a backslidden Christian or this or that. They don't know how to categorize that stuff. That's stuff that we understand. And so the nations of the world were looking around and they were looking at saying, well, apparently concerning the God of the Jews, he's in on this. This is okay with him. And they had lost sight of the fact that they were representing not just themselves, but representing the Lord. And so God makes a point here to say this had absolutely uh, nothing uh, to do uh, with me at all. And so he said, therefore, uh, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no longer be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but it will be the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. The bodies will lie uh, so thick and uh, piled one upon the, uh, another, there won't be enough people left uh, to bury them. They will be eaten by animals. And I will make this city uh, desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all uh, of its plagues. And I will cause them, uh, so they're, uh, they're going to uh, ha- uh, have the same things that they had done to their children, would be done to them in that valley. They would go into captivity uh, and then in that uh, siege of Babylon against them, they would resort to cannibalism during the siege, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. Their children would be, as is so often the case, the young children would be the first to die, and so unwilling to repent and to turn to God, all the way till the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem, uh, they're willing to eat their children and, and in order to sustain themselves in the rebellion, it's amazing where we will go and what we're capable of. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say, there's very little in life that I don't think I'm capable of. Put in, uh, I, in the Lord, no. But apart from the Lord, what I would be able to resort to and so forth, there's very little in life that shocks me is something that I look and say, well, that is something that, you know, put in the wrong place at the wrong time, the wrong circumstances, under the wrong indoctrination, I could never be that. I don't believe that about very many people at all. But it just shows you how dangerous it is to worship something other than God Himself. This is the kind of person that they would become, the kind of person they would have never become uh, uh, under the Lord Himself and His influence and the beautiful holiness of the Holy Spirit. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall uh, drive them uh, to despair. And so, just as they had slaughtered their children, they uh, would be slaughtered uh, as well. And this is where, where they would end up. I think that it, it's, uh, it, it, you know, you uh, look at Judah, ancient Judah, and of course it has tremendous applications for us uh, today. And, and I'm like probably every pastor in the world. I, 
Uh, I, I, you know, if I never got to uh, mention abortion again the rest of my life, I, I would probably be happy on a certain level. But there's no ignoring the Holocaust that abortion is in our nation and in our world. It must be resisted, absolutely must be uh, resisted, and I'm thankful uh, that that's going on in our uh, nation today. But you look at uh, Judah, we look at our nation today, and how in the world can a nation or a people who sacrifice or slaughter their children and, and ever rise up and complain when ultimately God comes in uh, to judge them? And rarely as justice is as perfect as this. By the way, there's forgiveness for any sin, including abortion. I hope everyone in this room has experienced this forgiveness, and I don't want a single person to leave this room tonight thinking about that one minute after I'm done talking about this point. I've got a lot of sin in my life that I'm ashamed of as well, and God doesn't take us to go back into that. The blood of Christ is a wonderful thing. It not only provides us with forgiveness, but God remembers our sin no more. How is that possible for the all-knowing God to remember our sin no more? I don't know how it works out. I only know that it does, and I'm thankful for it. But in terms of the environment that we're in, this is a battle for righteousness and holiness and so forth that simply cannot be lost. And so, uh, because uh, God here in this place, He makes the site of their crimes uh, became uh, the site of their very own uh, cemetery. I think it's important, too, to realize that just because something was or just because something is sanctioned by law and uh, the offering of children as human sacrifices uh, unto Molech, that was law. That was uh, okay under the reign of King Manasseh. But just because it's approved by man, it doesn't make it legal in God's eyes. It just merely reflects kind of the spiritual, the moral insanity uh, of people who would legalize this kind of thing within a nation, God will still judge it. And we have a lot of things, and it's not going to stop anytime soon uh, unless, again, some revival breaks out. But there's all kinds of things that are sanctioned by law now within our nation that are lawful to engage in, but they're absolutely abhorred by God, abortion being one of them legalization of drugs for the purpose of getting high. It's another one. Prostitution as it's legal in Nevada and elsewhere. And so just because the laws of the land uh, uh, say that there's, there's no prohibition related to it, there's a law that we're under that's greater than our own laws, and it is the law of God. Because even though these things were lawful in terms of how debased Judah became, it was still an abomination uh, in uh, God's uh, eyes. And so uh, here God speaks about the judgment that He would bring upon them. And He said, then you shall break the flask. And here's the demonstration outwardly. Uh, you will uh, break the flask in the sight of the men who are with you. So the pottery is then broken, and here's the message associated with it. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Even so, I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel and cannot be made whole again. One thing about breaking a piece of pottery is you don't glue that back together. That's done, and, uh, and which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet until there is no place to bury them. A valley wouldn't be able to handle them, the number of bodies that will uh, die in that judgment. And thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this uh, city like Tophet, and the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, because all of the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to all of the host of heaven and poured out drink offerings uh, to other uh, gods. And so uh, this breaking of the pot was the symbol of the breaking that would then uh, soon uh, come into, into their lives and the judgment. And then Jeremiah, he left Tophet where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he then went to the court of the Lord's house. He went to the temple, and he stood there, and he declares essentially the same message, not just to the religious leaders and the leaders of the nation, but now to the individual people coming in out of the temple. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against her, uh, against it, because they have stiffened their neck uh, that they might not hear my words. And so, uh, uh, so ends these uh, two kind of uh, dramatizations intended to get the attention of the people, and then the message of a call to repent uh, that, that he delivered, and their response was a non-response, except for a very poor response that occurred when, as we get into chapter 20, which we will not do tonight, a gentleman by the name of Pasher, uh, he is the son of a priest, he hears Jeremiah preaching there, and uh, his reaction was far from repentance, and uh, he has Jeremiah arrested. And then as we go into chapter 20, oh, let's just, I'm just kidding. Uh, as we go into it, a very, very rich chapter in terms of a glimpse at the heart and the mind and, and so forth of Jeremiah as we would want to learn from his life related to our lives and our ministries uh, as well. And so uh, we'll ask the worship team to come up now and we'll look to close out with a couple of worship songs. And, uh, but as we close these two chapters, the, uh, once again, the realization that none of us has any hope of winning in a fight or battle with God. And so in our own hearts, we would want to give that up tonight. If you're in a struggle with God over some particular issue, some relationship in your life, or some direction that He wants you to go in, some change that He wants you to make that you're not interested in doing, and yeah, 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 you know, that thing that we can do, and Judah became state of the art of it, but, you know, it all began as yeah, 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 uh, and then it turns into this. And so to nip that kind of thing at the bud and to realize, God, I, I, I want you to win. I don't want to fight you. I want you to win in this battle because when you win, I win. And uh, to have enough sanctified self-preservation uh, to do that and to make that surrender uh, tonight. And then the realization that judgment uh, is coming, and it's coming upon this world. And God is going to judge this world in kind uh, for 
the sin that is going on in this world, and not the least of which is the persecution of his children all around the world. I know that there was a great turnout uh, for prayer related to the persecuted church here this last week, but the Middle East is in danger of losing its entire Christian presence at this moment in history. Wasn't the Arab Spring a wonderful thing for our government to launch, to set that whole part of the world on fire and then go off into some kind of a retirement and then leave people to be fleeing by the tens of millions for their lives when it's not anything they wanted. You might have read uh, here in, even in this last week that they now declared that there is, uh, at this point, because of the persecution of Christians in Libya, there is no Christian presence in that country. How astonishing is that? How amazing is that? The evangelists, the missionaries, the, uh, the people that went out and established a, the kingdom of God within that country, and now it's being uh, swept away by, uh, and persecuted uh, out of existence, either by death or driven and to become refugees to wherever anyone can get a boat or pass on, on land related to. And God watches all of it. And, and I've, I've said before, I don't want to live in a world that will kill Christians for simply being Christians. That says something so awful about the world that we live in, that individual people who are becoming like Jesus Christ and endeavoring to live His life and to live His commandments in this world become the enemy. When they become the enemy, in a world, that is a world that is headed for judgment. And again, without a revival and without an awakening of some kind, that's the world that we live in. And the importance of us tonight, we can't change the world. I can't change the world. I wouldn't want the power to do so if I had it. God is very good at what He does. But for our own lives tonight, as we look at the book of Jeremiah, we heed the Apostle Paul's call in the New Testament where he says, come out from among them and be ye separate, to separate ourselves from the sins that are uh, accruing tremendous judgment from God in this world, and to repent of those things, to, to, uh, to put a separation in our life uh, from those things and come into a, a place of safety as uh, a result. And so, uh, valuable lessons for us. This isn't just some, you know, uh, thousands and hundreds of years on top of the thousands of years ago. The message speaks to us tonight. We have the same flesh is the people that were in Judah. We have the same capacity for self-justification, -justi the justification of sin, the same capacity for self-deception, the same capacity for all of it. But the Word of God is a sword of the Spirit, it's in, and it's intended to cut these roots away related to our lives earlier rather than later, because the same pattern, once it gets established, we can become unrecognizable as human beings if we follow them in the same path. And somebody would look and say, I knew Charlie back when. 
And, but that was five years ago. What in the world has he become? Charlie, nothing personal related to that. I'm not in the office of a prophet right now. I know in my own life I could be unrecognizable in no time if I were to walk away from the Lord and begin to live this life on my own terms. And it's true for all of us. It, the, the Bible talks about, we're down to half a song now, I'm sorry about that, but the Bible talks about and repeats it over and over again, talks about the beauty of holiness. Isn't that a wonderful phrase that God uses? The beauty of holiness. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a safe thing. So let's embrace it tonight, that there'd be no root at all in our lives that is, is going into sin um, in, in uh, any way. Uh, now, I, I feel obligated, having introduced this worship set uh, in, in that way, to at least have us do one uh, song before I close up in prayer. And so, Samuel, would you lead us in worship as we just kind of allow the Holy Spirit to do some final work in our hearts before we head off uh, into our cars and into the daily of our life? <laughs> 